This week, Pastor Spiegelberg is with us, who starts his services next week. He shares with us what it means to be salt and light in the world. This sermon was originally recorded at Castle Rock Middle School, August 30th, 2013. Grace, mercy, and peace be yours, dear brothers and sisters in Christ, on this wonderful Sunday morning. Um, I've got a, it's not a quiz. Um, I've got something I want you to do this morning. So just play along. It may feel a little bit corny, but it's a little more fun if you do it. Uh, so everybody's got to close their eyes, okay? Now my eyes are closed, so I don't know if you're actually playing along or not. And then touch the tip of your nose with your right finger. Okay. Okay, you can let go. You can open your eyes now. You can take your fingers off your nose too. Okay, so how many of you were able to do that this morning? Yeah, that's pretty good. Um, The truth is, so that test, usually about 90% of you are going to be able to do on the first try. Those of you that like poked yourself in the eye or in the ear, um, you'll be able to do it on the second try, right? So that's a task, that's a skill that all of us can do. Now, if you had to teach the person next to you how to do that silly thing I just got you to do, that's a little more difficult, isn't it? So uh, if, if you had to, to actually tell somebody or write down on paper what you just did, it's harder, isn't it? Because what would you even talk about? You talk about like, well, you, you, uh, you've got to have your, your elbows got to be at a 90-degree angle, and then you've got to explain what a 90-degree angle is, and you talk about how you're going to swing your finger towards your nose. And I mean, ultimately, at some point, it gets a little bit silly because it's very, very hard to do. And probably what you would do is say, well, you just got to try it. Just do it, and a few times, and you're, then you're going to get it, right? It, it's a small example of what we call tacit knowledge. Uh, it's knowledge that is, is most easily conveyed by doing, right? So knowledge that's most easily transferred from one person to another by simply going through the activity and doing it. So it's called tacit knowledge. And all of you, whether you knew it or not, uh, are involved in tacit knowledge every day of your life, right? What's the best way to learn a language? Go ahead, you can tell me. Learn it. What's, yeah, what's the absolute best way to learn a foreign language? Full immersion. Yeah, full immersion. Like, the best way to learn it is just plop me down in the middle of Mexico, and guess what? Very quickly, I'm going to probably learn how to talk or get very, very hungry, right? Right? So, the, the best way to learn a language is by being immersed in it. Now, that may sound funny because I've had languages, lots and lots of languages, and all, almost all of it, I just sat in a classroom like with a book, learning syntax and grammar and declensions and all these things, right, which is all very necessary in case any of my seminary professors are listening. Um, very, very necessary, especially when you're learning Hebrew and Greek, the, the languages of the Bible. Uh, but truly, the best way to learn a language is by being immersed in it, right? Uh, Because a lot of language that is conveyed that you learn is not stuff that you can put down on a book or on a piece of paper, right? Uh, The the best example of this, and probably some of you are in it right now, actually I'll ask that, are any of you in email escalations? That's a term I made up. Maybe someone else thought of it too, but it's one of these email strings where like you email somebody and they get it or you get it and you're like, what did they mean by that word? So then you quickly email back because you're, you're like, well, that's a little odd. You know, that's a little ambiguous. So you email back, and they, then they get it, and they're like, well, why did they end it that way? So 
So then all of a sudden these emails start to escalate, like you're each getting testier and testier and your emails are getting more and more angry. And in reality, neither of you are probably angry at each other, but what's happening? The language is failing you, isn't it? Because email is a great uh, transmitter of facts and it's a terrible transmitter of feelings and emotions and actual intentions, right? They say about 80% of language is nonverbal, isn't it? So even my theme today, which is he was, he is, you are, are you? If I put that down on paper without a little uh, question mark at the end, you don't get it, right? So there's a lot of things in our lives that are tacit knowledge that we can only learn by doing. Um, Snowboarding, right? Riding a bike. All these kind of things are things that the only way you can really learn how to do them is by doing them. Jesus talks to us in that same way here today in our text. Uh, Our text that I'm going to read for you in just a moment comes uh, just on the heels of what Pastor Oldenburg read for our gospel lesson today. And really what Jesus is telling us is, this is who you are, and it's really encouragement for us to then go out into our lives and be that very thing. So let me read from you from Matthew chapter 5. I'm just going to read verses 13 through 16. Jesus says this, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. This is the word of our Lord. So, Jesus, this is, we've got to set the setting a little bit for what we just heard uh, and for, for this section of Scripture. Uh, it's actually rather early in Jesus' ministry. Uh, he had just chosen his disciples to be his followers, and he comes with this Sermon on the Mount with the Beatitudes, and he gives all kinds of wonderful advice about Christian living. He basically says to his disciples, this is what you're going to be in your world going forward. This is what I want you to look like. Now, up to this point, the disciples probably didn't have a whole lot of tacit knowledge, a whole lot of experience actually being these things. And that stood in stark contrast uh, with an Israelite society. Because if you, were, if you were a Jew, if you were an Israelite, and you looked around and you said, I want to find somebody that I can point to and kind of emulate. Right? I want to find somebody that's a, a spiritual mentor for me and for my faith and, and for my life. If you were a Jew, you'd look around and probably the, the place that you would point would be to what they were called Pharisees or Sadducees, right? Some of the religious leaders uh, of the Jews and the Israelites at that time. And what you'd see were men that, that at least outwardly looked as though they had everything kind of wrapped up, right? And yet... Uh, the things that Jesus wants these disciples to do and to be in their world and what they would be into their lives and and what the Christian church would be founded on stood in stark contrast to these Pharisees. See, these these Pharisees basically felt that if they lived right enough, they could make themselves right with God, right? And so what they had done, they'd taken the Old Testament, they'd taken their scriptures, and they'd boiled it down to a set of rules, a set of laws, a set of regulations. 613 mitzvot, right? 613 rules or regulations or stipulations that God had given to them and to us. And if you were able to follow those well enough, long enough, then maybe you would make yourself right with God. 
So you'd put your 613 mitts vote on your refrigerator, and each day you'd try to check off as many as you could, right? And if you got more than at least your neighbor or that, that other guy that you know, right, uh, then maybe you're doing pretty well and maybe you're making yourself right in God's eyes. And so they, they very much turned Scripture and the gospel and, and the love of God into a to-do list of how to get right with God. And that's what those Pharisees did. But actually, even today, you see some, some echoes of that with, within our world. Uh, have any of you ever heard of a Sabbath elevator? Have any of you ever ridden on a Sabbath elevator? Uh, I, I lived in Toronto about a year and a half ago. Uh, and downtown in the hospital, uh, Sinai Hospital downtown, which was fantastic, uh, I, was, I was going to visit a member, and they were like on the 20th floor, and I got to the elevator, and I looked, and, uh, and on the sign it said Sabbath elevator or Shabbat elevator. So I was super curious what that was. Actually, I think I've got a picture of it here. Let's see if I can get this to work. There it is. Shabbat elevator, right? So essentially what this is, and, and this, is, this is kind of an extension all the way back to what the Pharisees had done with the Old Testament, boiling it down to a set of laws and regulations. Right? Uh, so basically the Shabbat elevator, was only, it's only used on a Saturday on the Sabbath day, right? And we know that God tells us, honor the Sabbath day, so Jews would, would mark the Sabbath day as a day of rest. And so you were not allowed to work on the Sabbath, right? Illegal to work on the Sabbath. Even uh, if you go forward about six, seven chapters in Matthew, you actually hear the disciples getting in trouble by the Pharisees for doing work on the Sabbath. What were they doing? They were walking through a field and they grabbed some heads of grain and they crumpled them up and they threw them in their mouth, which was work and then technically sinning, right? So uh, you're not to work on, on the Sabbath. We could move all the way forward to a Sabbath elevator. Uh, this is an elevator that actually, there's two different kinds. One will go and open on every single floor so it just opens automatically every single floor all the way up. Um, now, Mount Sinai Hospital had about 25 floors, so <laughs> it would take a really long time to get to the top and get to the bottom. Right? And they did that. They still do that to this day. There's still Sabbath elevators around uh, because you didn't want to work on the Sabbath. So building fire on the Sabbath was work. So guess what? Pushing a button. What, does, what happens when you push that electrical button on an elevator? An electrical charge goes, which is technically building a fire, which is technically work. And so you cannot push a button on an elevator on the Sabbath, otherwise you may be breaking God's laws. Right? Now that's a, that's a modern example of how far this had gone for the Pharisees to try to earn their righteousness. Right? Uh, it's also a, an example of what those Pharisees were living as examples to those Jews, but we understand that there's a difficulty with that, isn't there? Because if you have those 613 laws, and you have even more that surround those just so that you don't even get close to those 613, sooner or later we all realize that we aren't going to be able to keep half of them or any of them, right? And so then you start to justify yourself, and we do this as well, don't we, in, in our own hearts, because our, our human nature loves to justify. We like to have lists of to-dos. We're very task-oriented in America, right? So we like to have our list of to-dos and, and technically let me do these things and then I'll get this exact result from it. But we don't always do it perfectly. And so our sinful hearts start to justify, don't we? Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, right? But we kind of backtrack a little bit. We say, well, but only if they're actually lovable, right? Because that really mean guy, like I'm, Jesus is not talking about them, right? 
I'll, I'll love them as myself as long as they go first, right? So you love me first, and then I have no problem loving you back, no problem, right? Uh, or even with, we, we consider that with anger, right? Well, somebody hurt us, somebody wounded us, somebody uh, um, sinned against us, and so we have every right to harbor anger in our hearts, and not just that, but maybe we, we harbor a grudge five years, ten years, 20 years. I am amazed how many brothers and sisters, moms and dads, grandpas and grandmas go to their deathbed without having talked to a loved one. Grudges held for years and years and years. And we justify it, don't we? we say, well, I'm, I'm justified in my anger because of what they did. Right? And so that's what happens when we live our lives according to uh, when we think we can make ourselves right in God's eyes according to a set of rules and regulations. And that was the example that had been set for the Jews at that time. And Jesus is taking his disciples and setting them aside and saying, you're going to live your lives radically different. In fact, you're going to live your lives radically different because of the motivation. And ultimately, that's where we return to Jesus. Right? Jesus was the, a living, breathing example of tacit knowledge, wasn't he? Uh, Jesus' words, very words were scripture, very words were perfect and inspired, right? His word is what we follow in our lives, what we find on the pages of scripture, and yet it, was, it wasn't just words, was it? Jesus, the divine, came to our earth, lived in our world, became a human, entered into our history, and why did he do that? Well, he did that for us. He did that to wash our sins clean so that we would not have to live our lives thinking that we could somehow justify ourselves or live right enough to get right with God, but so that we could live our lives out of thankfulness for what Jesus has already done for us. Right? Jesus came to wash away sin, wash away shame, wash away guilt, to not only show us how to do it, but to actually do it to live his life perfectly in our place, to live his life perfectly, that life which we cannot do to the best of our abilities. And so that's what Jesus conveys to these disciples. He says, I'm here as your Savior. I'm here to wash your sins away. And when you know that your sins are forgiven, now I'm going to give you some beautiful words, uh, some beautiful things to be, and some beautiful words about who you are. And so that's where Jesus turns to Using two illustrations, rather, he calls them salt, calls us, rather, salt and light, um, which maybe for us, our modern ears is just a little bit odd because uh, salt and light. Light, I think we get that one, but salt, maybe not so much. Uh, salt at that time, uh, within that world, salt was incredibly valuable. In fact, it was more valuable than gold. So if you were a Roman soldier, you would get paid in salt. And your salt payment was called a solarium, not a solarium, which I got mixed up. The solarium is a place where you find sun, and much different. A solarium, right? And so if any of you get a salary, if you earn a salary, guess where that word salary comes from? Solarium, and you're getting your salt portion, right? So they would get paid in salt. It was that valuable, right? Salt was used for a couple different things. It makes food pretty tasty. And I know we're all trying to cut down on our sodium and our sodium intakes Really, really bad, but salt is so good. Like, it just, it makes food, food so good. Um, so it's tasty. And then the second thing that salt did at that time was for preservation, right? They didn't have uh, freezers and refrigerators and things like that. So you could preserve your meat. Uh, you could make it last longer, and you could feed your family longer with it, right? And so Jesus calls us the salt of the earth. 
um, we can bring some taste to people's lives. And I don't mean just kind of being wild and fun and all this, but the taste that we as Christians can bring to people's lives is forgiveness, is love, is real relationships, relationships that, that, that move beyond just surface, right? That's, how, that's what we can bring to our world. And then preservation. Ultimately, we live our lives not just for this life, but for eternity, and we bring Christ to our world, right? Salvation to our world. Second picture he uses is, he calls us light, light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, right? And light does a couple things. It, it reveals danger, but it also shows us where safety's at, doesn't it? And Jesus does that very same thing, has done that very same thing for you, hasn't he? You know you're forgiven. You know your destination. You know where you can turn to when times get difficult, when your life gets difficult. We are now asked, Jesus rather tells us, we are to be a light to our world, to show not only danger, but also safety and the joy that we find in Jesus as our Lord and Savior. Now, it's interesting because both of those illustrations, what does Jesus say about you and me? He says, you are. He doesn't qualify it. He doesn't say when you want to be sometimes or only when you're here in church on a Sunday morning, but he says, you are. He simply states it that way. This is what you are. You are to be salt and light to your world. And so my question is, are you? Trouble, and I, I speak for myself, how many times I'm not. <laughs> right? These glorious words that Jesus himself, who laid down his life for us, calls us. He says, this is what you are. You are a light to the world. You are salt for our, for our world. These are what you are, and yet how often I fall completely short, and maybe you'd say the same, right? How easy it is to be you are when you're in the company of other Christians, and how hard it is to be you are when you're outside these walls, right? It's difficult, isn't it? Because shame and fear and uncertainty wash over us, right? And so it's very easy for us as Christians to step back from being who we are meant to be, to not be lights, to not be salt of the earth. Those fears, those concerns, we all share them, by the way. None of us are free of those. Um, it, it's hard living as a light in a sin-darkened world. It's not easy. There are going to be times when you share your faith, when you demonstrate love, when you show forgiveness in your families, in your church, in your workplace, when people want, will want to have nothing to do with it. But there are times when you share your faith, when you share that forgiveness and that love, when, when you become a light to your world or a light to that person. And Jesus tells us this may very well happen. Verse 16, he says, In the same way, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. So just the very end of that, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Right? As you live out your lives as salt in your world and as a light to your world, there's a chance that you might feel ashamed. There's a chance that you might feel scorned. There's a chance that people might make fun of you or look down on you for your faith or for being a follower of Christ but brothers and sisters, what if verse 16 happens? What if your efforts to be a light and salt to your world, what if the result of that is verse 16? That they see your good deeds and ultimately they praise your Father in heaven. What does that mean? It means they come to faith. 
They come to know who Jesus is and what he's done for them on the cross. And I would argue that's a risk worth taking. And I'd also say it's, it's not easy to do. But it's, it's eternal, isn't it? It's absolutely a risk worth taking. As you live your lives as salt and light in this world, some will come to faith and come to know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Uh, when I was, <clears throat> when my son was younger, I'm going to see if I can switch to this last one. Uh, my eldest son, TJ, uh, we taught him how to ride a bike. And he was my first kid. And so with your first kid, like you, I don't know, like everything's advanced. So you just like want him to do everything. And like now, like you want him to learn language and ride a bike and do everything. So uh, TJ was only, he was not even three yet. I think he was like two and a half, somewhere in there. We had a big parking lot out front of our house. And uh, my wife and I got this great idea that we're going to see, we're just going to like push him to see what we can make him do. Like, so we went out there and I know you're all like, why would you? Anyway, so we put him on the bike and TJ had seen me ride my bike. Uh, so we'd, we'd model it for him. We told him about, well, you want to keep your balance and keep your feet on the pedals and just keep going straight. But ultimately, what did we have to do to teach him how to ride a bike? Make him do it. We had to put him on the bike. So we did. We stuck this little kid on this bike. I can't even imagine why we did this at such a young age. But, I mean, it was terrible. So we put him on this bike, and, like, Jamie and I were, like, pumped. Like, our kid's going to ride his bike. And so I, I ran along with him, and he said, don't let go of my seat. And I said, oh, of course I won't let go of your seat. And I let go of his seat. Um, and, and you kind of let him go, and he goes about another 10 feet, and he does what? Tips over and falls. Starts to cry a little bit, but, but we, we clap our hands and we cheer and comes back and what do you do? You do it again, right? And that's what we did. And you did it over and over and over again. And in about an hour, an hour and a half, TJ had learned to ride a bike. Not perfectly, not wonderfully. He wasn't doing wheelies and stuff like that. But in about an hour, an hour and a half, he had learned the concept of riding a bike and balance, right? And it didn't come without a few bumps and bruises and, and to the left and to the right. But ultimately, he learned by doing. And I guess that'd be my parting encouragement for all of you as individuals and even as a church, right? Um, the best way for us to learn how to share our faith in a world that desperately, desperately needs it is by doing it, right? The best way to learn is by simply being who you are. Um, you've done that here at Eternal Rock for four years. How old is Eternal Rock? Four years old. Um, you've done that corporately as a church, and I know all of you have done that as individuals at home as well. Um, and if, for that, thank you, actually. Um, we're about to start our launch service. We're about to start church, start a new church in Firestone, which is about an hour north of us here. Um, and so you all, whether you knew it or not, as an institution, as a church, have modeled what it takes to start something new. And I'm sure if we went back, there have been times when you as a church or individually, uh, when you've gone one way or another, when there's been bumps and bruises, there have been adjustments all the way along the way. But the only way to learn how to start a church is by starting a church, right? Um, we're about to do that this next weekend, um, but it's a powerful witness and model when you're able to preach to and be amongst other Christians that have done that very same thing. So for that... I say thank you, and I guess um, parting encouragement would be don't stop being who you are. Jesus was, Jesus was, or Jesus was, Jesus is, and you are. May the Lord bless your witness to your world and your community. Amen.